we are working our way through the book of Mark. We've come to the end of chapter 2 in the book of Mark. We're going to cover verses 23 through 28 this morning. As we get into these scriptures, what we're finding is Jesus is bringing to the world the truth. And in John chapter 4, Jesus says, if anyone wants to worship me, they must do that in spirit and in truth. And Jesus has come into a world, and as he's come into the world, he's come into a specific context of what was going on religiously in the world. Specifically, he's come in as the Messiah to the Jews, the king who has prophesied that would come, the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. And as he came into that environment, he came into a very religious environment. He came into an environment where many people would have very, uh, a very hard time following religion, where many people would just give up where many people would just feel overwhelmed with the thought and the idea of, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. This is too, too big of a thing for me. And there were religious Pharisees who then would put these burdens on people to an extent to where they weren't worshiping at all. And it became more about what, what one does and how good a person can be completely missing what God said in his Bible, even in the Old Testament, that the just shall live by faith. And so people would have these heavy burdens. They would feel guilty. They would feel shame and they wouldn't know what to do with that. And so they would try to do religious exercises to make that guilt and shame go away. And they would find that that guilt and shame just felt like more and more of a burden. And so the more they tried to work it off, the more guilty they would feel. And there was no hope. And here comes Jesus. Jesus comes into this picture, bringing about this, this release from these burdens, this true hope of grace and not works. And he understood that the people were in this condition of, of burdens. And so let's read this, this section of scripture and then we'll go through it a little more, uh, little more thoroughly. So in verse 23, it says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priests. 
And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. This would be a mind-blowing thought, teaching, declaration of what Jesus just said, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So it starts off with this controversy, this controversy that surrounded this particular day, the Sabbath. So what was this all about? And, And what was the Sabbath? How did that become something that it seemed like Jesus would would really attack their their understanding and their really their worship of this thing called the Sabbath. And so as Jesus starts off this section of scripture, as Jesus is is moving, we get this picture in Mark that Jesus is very active and he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's going from town to town. There's Uh, people that begin to gather around him more and more and more. There are multitudes, so much so that he often has to retreat to go by the Sea of Galilee, which is where he's ministering in all these villages and towns around this particular sea. And as he's doing that and as his popularity is growing, it's growing mainly because he's healing people, mainly because he's doing things that people have never seen before, but as he's doing those things, he's explaining what's behind those things. In other words, he's trying to get to people to understand that he has authority over sickness, over disease, over demons. He has authority in his teaching. He's, He's trying to show the people through the miracles that he is the Lord of Lord king of kings that he is all knowing all powerful all present that he truly is the messiah that the old testament said would come and take away the sins of the world and so he's as he's moving as he's going from town to town he's with his disciples these disciples that he he is he has called to follow him and we get this idea that is his disciples are actually experiencing a newfound freedom when they're with Jesus. They uh, weren't fasting like normally people would fast. They weren't going through these rigorous, strenuous, religious exercises that were in that day seen as those who are holy, they do these things. And people didn't like that, especially the religious people. They didn't like that his disciples didn't fast and in, in, instead of fasting there it seemed like they're actually having fun instead of uh, walking around in a very uh, discouraged depressed way of having no uh, no hope but when they're with Jesus they were seemed like they're having a good time and the Pharisees they just kept pointing at them it seemed like the Pharisees would pop up out of nowhere It just seemed like they're always around. And and that's how it is when we fall into legalism is we're just always pointing at people. We're always critical of people. That's a a pharisaical type of attitude. And the, the Pharisees were basically a religious sect 
of the Jews. And they were zealous about the religious ceremonial laws. And that's what they're all into. They're, they're all into the keeping of these ceremonial laws in order to be righteous and holy before God. And so what they would do is they would take what the scriptures would say, so they would follow the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, and then their scholars would come about and then explain in detail how exactly those things of the Torah or the first five books of the, the Bible, the same ones that we have, of how they actually were to be practiced and applied. The only problem is, is as they would interpret those things and they would develop these uh, books or manuscripts called the Talmud and the Mishnah, that they, they would develop man-made traditions that would end up being more authoritative than the actual scriptures. And so as, as Jesus comes in, his disciples are just following Jesus. And as they're following Jesus, they're not so much concerned about the rigidness of following these rules. Rules. So there's a sense of freedom there. There's a sense of joy there. There's a sense that as, as, as long as I'm with Jesus, this is great. There's joy. And so now as they're going through the grain fields as an agricultural society, then his disciples, they start plucking heads of grain, which was not wrong to do. Plucking heads of grain in someone else's grain field was okay. There was actually a provision in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 25, that says, when you come to your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So it's like if you were walking home today and you had nothing to eat, then you can walk through somebody's yard and if they had a pomegranate tree, you can pick a pomegranate and eat it. If they had a banana tree, you can pick a banana and eat it and that would be totally fine. But notice I find in Deuteronomy, I find it interesting the necessity to put a limit on that. So he says, well, just don't bring your sickle. So if somebody has a pomegranate tree and you're walking home, you're hungry, take a pomegranate, but don't come and bring your chainsaw and cut the tree down and take it home. But God knows human nature, doesn't he? He knows one is not, for us is not usually good enough. So if we have this provision, then we want to go as far as we can. So he says, just don't bring your sickle and use their land to uh, bring your own harvest off of their land. But the problem was, is what we see the Pharisees saying when they said to him, get this, this picture of the disciples just enjoying themselves, they're with Jesus, they're hungry, they're eating, there's provision there, and here pops up out of nowhere, it seems like, a Pharisee, and they're saying, look, 
it's almost like a, an accusation, uh, accusational tone that they're they're doing. It's sort of like a a big brother to a younger brother or to the mom of the younger brother and say, look what he's doing. Look, he's taking cookies. His hand's in the cookie jar. Look, it's like that. They're, they're, look, we're, we got him on something. Look at his disciples. Jesus already said they don't, they don't fast, and he explained that. We saw that last week. But look what they're doing. We got them. They're busted. And these were the, the religious authorities of the time. And they explain, they say, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So this is the whole, where the whole controversy lies. The Sabbath controversy. And it seems as if the Sabbath becomes in many cases this lightning rod of differentiation. The Sabbath becomes this testing or proving ground of what one believes and how one views God, really. Six times throughout the Gospels, we see this Sabbath day controversy, and here's one of them. So what is this all about? What is the Sabbath, and, and what's the significance of it, and why is that a thing? Well, Sabbath, the Hebrew word literally means to cease and desist from all activity. It was the seventh day of the week for the Jews, and it started on Friday night at sundown and ended on Saturday night at sundown. In Vine's expository dictionary of the New Testament, it describes the Sabbath like this. The seventh day of each week is a sacred festival in which Israelites were required to abstain from work. And the way that the Israelites conducted themselves on the Sabbath goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 verse 10 and also Exodus chapter 31 verse 13. And, and the context of that is when they were led out of Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and they were led out of Egypt. And then God, as he led them out of Egypt, was then establishing a nation that was a theocracy, where God would directly rule over them. And so as they came out of Egypt, God was going to bring them into a land and he was going to be the center of all that they were and all that they did. And so God gave them the Ten Commandments to tell them and explain to them what God's heart was about how to live correctly. And so as God is establishing with the Jews this theocracy and as he's taking them into the promised land, one of those things was that they were to cease or desist from work one day a week. Now, the Pharisees and those like the Pharisees, the scribes and people like that, 
they took that word work and then they began to interpret what exactly work was. So the, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for the people, right? Doesn't it sound good just stop from work one day we not do anything? Do we have a hard time with that usually? So we maybe get a day off or two, but do we fill that day off with two or two with doing a bunch of stuff? The Sabbath was God saying, I want you to know how much I care for you and how much I love you. Therefore, I want you to have a day where it's actually woven into the fabric of your society where you don't do anything. Where you can, yes, rest physically, but that wasn't the main thing. Because, and here, here's, here's really the core and the heart of the Sabbath, what we have to get. So if we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, where God worked to create the world and everything in it, the last thing that he made was man. In Genesis 1.26, he created man in his image. So there was a, a uniqueness, a specialness about human beings and how God made them. And they were designed to be in fellowship with God. And get this. So after God worked to create the material world, the world as we know it and everything in it, then he rested after that. Was God tired? Did God need to rest? Was he, whew, man, where's my hammock? That was really difficult to bring all this to pass, and now I needed, I needed a break. I need a day off. That's not the case. The, the, the case was that God wanted Adam, as he created Adam, the first man, he wanted Adam's first experience as a human being in this world to be with God and rest with God and enjoy God. That's at the core of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to be resting in the Lord. It's to be trusting in the Lord. It's to understand that the Lord is good and that the Lord wants us to have fellowship with him designed to live our life. Human beings were made to have fellowship with God. We were made in God's image for the purpose of enjoying God, of fellowship with God. And so as we understand that's the original Sabbath and then we fast forward to the book of Exodus when God delivered his people out of Egypt, then now his purpose and his plan because of the fall, because sin entered the world after this lovely creation of God where he's created man in fellowship with him, the fall, sin, sin entered into the world, it separated man from God. And then there is not rest anymore. There was just work. There was labor. And so fast forward now, God through the nation of Israel, he wants to make the world aware of God again. 
And he wants the world to know that he is the one true God. And so he establishes the Sabbath day so that people would know how good God is and how he wants to bless us. The problem is the children of Israel, because they did not honor God, then they substituted a relationship with God for activity, activities for God. Do you get that? So they substituted a relationship with God, a theocracy where God would be over them and he would be their God and they would worship him. He would provide for them, direct them. Um, he would be everything for them. And then the nations around them would say, who's that God that is so good? And they would come to know the true God of all gods, the only one true God. But again, like so often we do, that we don't want a relationship with God. And so we feel that. Because we are designed to have a relationship with God, when we do not want a relationship with God, we feel that. Because we were made to have a relationship with God. And so we feel friction. We are restless. We are anxious. And we live in a world that is looking to fill the, that void of relationship with God with all sorts of things. And there are many things that are readily available for anybody who wants them. And they are substitutes for a relationship with God. But the children of Israel substituted a relationship with God with religious works. And religious works comes from a desire that we have as human beings to be righteous. Yet, when we cast off a relationship with God, we try to be righteous by religious exercise, commitments, and duties. And when we do that, we become prideful, judgmental, and get this, guilt-filled. Because good works will not wash away the sin of our heart. We will just be good-working sinners. And the Bible tells us when we try to work and do good works to try to be acceptable to God... We are actually in a worse condition than not doing good works at all. This was the case. This was the condition. This is why the Jews would say, look, why are they not keeping the Sabbath? And those who are saying this, the Pharisees, they would be teaching people Rules and laws, so much so the Mishnah, which is one of their religious books and interpretations, it had 39 ways that it was possible to violate the Sabbath. And then 39 ways for each of the 39 ways that you can violate those Sabbath violations. 
So imagine trying to live like that. I copied and pasted a set, the section from the Mishnah that, that explains these 39 prohibitions on the Sabbath. And I'm going to read them very quickly, but remember, each, each of these 39 has 39 ways you can violate each one of the 39. So it says this in the Mishnah, the generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. How much is that? 39. Good job. He who sows, plows, reaps, binds sheaves. Remember, they were in an agricultural society. Threshes, winnows, selects fit from unfit produce or crops, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, shares wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins it, weaves it, makes two loops, weaves two threads, so you could do one thread, <laughs> separates two threads, ties or unties, can't tie your shoe or untie your shoe, which they didn't really have shoes, but sews to two stitches, tears in order to sew two stitches, he who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, curds its hide, scrapes it, and cuts it up. He who writes two letters, erases two letters in order to write two letters. He who builds, he who tears down, he who puts out a fire, he who kindles a fire, he who hits with a hammer, he who transports an object from one domain to another, these are the 40 generative acts of labor less one. Now, how does that look? So, so some of the ways that would look is you were not on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath would be initiated by a trumpet when three stars on Friday night would be seen. So the trumpet would blow in that Sabbath. All those things apply. Then the next day when three stars appear, then the Sabbath would be off. So you would not be able to go 2,000 steps from your house. So one of the things that they would do is the, before the Sabbath, tie a rope from their house and extend it as far out as they wanted to, and that would count as their house. So from the end of the rope, they could go 2,000 steps from the rope. A woman could not look into a mirror because she would be tempted if she saw a gray hair to pluck it out, and that would be a sin. You could not carry sheaves of grain, but you could carry a spoon. So you could put the spoon on top of the sheaf of grain and then carry the grain, a radish, you can dip in salt, but you can't leave it there because it might become pickled. And that would be a work. Pickling was a work. You could spit, but not on the dirt because it might cause a furrow, and that would be like um, doing plowing or something like that. 
If you had a dislocated shoulder, you're out of luck. You have to wait till the Sabbath's over to get it fixed. So things like that. And so you can see how exhausted the people would be when they would try to keep these laws and try to understand and live according to these laws. But, you, you know, as we laugh, this is what happens when we don't relate to God correctly based on what he did and not on what we do. That's really the Sabbath controversy for us. The Sabbath controversy then comes and visits us when in any way, shape, or form, we are looking to accomplish, appease, earn, or merit by keeping some sort of law or doing some sort of work. And when we do that, usually, as I mentioned before, the symptoms of that are that we feel guilty or that we are critical and judgmental in our heart and in our spirit. It's amazing to me over the past few months in talking with people how much guilt people are carrying around. And many of you and many of my conversations with you I've had conversations with, with Father's Day. Many fathers, I found, feel very guilty. Happy Father's Day. Well, I'm a terrible father, but, you know, I heard that a lot. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of attachment to the past. There's a, a lot of regret from the past. There's a, a, just a constant feeling of not being good enough and not doing enough. But Mother's Day was even worse. Happy Mother's Day. And then just these expressions of guilt and burden and and I, I messed my kids up and, and all these these feelings that we just feel like we're never enough. And here Jesus comes and he's dealing with those issues. So if you are generally a, a person that feels guilt a lot or on the opposite side, you're prideful and you think everybody is not as good as you and smart of you, and you can't believe somebody would do these things, then you might be on the wrong side of the Sabbath controversy. So the next thing then is this question is asked, Jesus is moving the conversation to what the reality of the Sabbath was. But before we do that, I asked you earlier if you'd turn to the book of Hebrews. So if you did that, you're in good shape because we're going to just take a little detour here. If you didn't do that, now's your chance. And if you don't want to, that's okay. But we have to get this point. This point of the Sabbath controversy. Which side are we on? Are we on the, the Pharisee side or are we on the, the grace side? So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, God's rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is expressing 
what we're talking about here that there's potential, one, for true believers to never have rest. Never have their souls at rest. And he tells us why. He says in verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So there it is. Here's the trap that we can fall into. Lord, I get up and I do my devotions. I go to church. I serve. Whenever we start using ourselves in the first person, we might be falling into this trap. Lord, I'm doing this and I do this, but things aren't happening like the way I want them to. Well, if we think that we've fallen into this trap. See, because what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is the, the word has to be mixed with faith. So we, the word is not just like a, a pill we take, we read it and then think, well, that reading is like taking a pill and this all my problems go away. What he's saying is, and here's, here's the key word, if we want to have rest, it's faith. So when we read the word and we close it, we're at rest because we're exercising our faith in the word. And because we're having faith in the word, we're resting. But if we don't have faith in the word, then that creates a vacuum for all sorts of things to tempt us away from God, away from hope in him, away from his truth, away from his promises. And Satan is at the ready, looking to pounce, even, or maybe I should say, especially on those who may be most zealous for God. Because the devil always sails with the wind. So if you're very zealous, he'll make your zealousness turn into legalism. And I like this because I'm able to know there's, there's one single answer when I don't have rest in my heart and my spirit. It's because I don't have faith. That's it. So as we're studying the book of Mark, as we're studying these passages... It's possible to go right out of here and still have the same worries and anxieties and complaints and frustrations and disappointments, but it's also possible to say, Lord, I stand on your word, and I believe that, and now I'm resting in that, and that's it. But if we won't do that, if we don't exercise faith in what God says, now we are falling into the abyss of the unknown. So the answer is faith. Look what he says next in verse 3. He says, for we who have believed do enter that rest as he said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my 
rest, speaking about the children of Israel that didn't go into the promised land because they didn't have faith that God said, go into the promised land. But they didn't. Why did they not? Because they looked at the promised land and it looked scary and they said, we'd rather not obey God. Instead, we're going to listen to our fears and our feelings and so we're going to stay out. So how did they spend their whole life? Going around in circles in the wilderness. But faith would have taken them in. So what is our faith in? Our our faith is just in God. It's in his promises. It's in the things that he's revealed in his word. And we just stand on that. And that brings peace to our souls. So he says in verse 4, For he has spoken, God, in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. What's the seventh day? Sabbath day. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will Hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Turn back with me. So the whole point, the whole explanation is unbelief. And the whole explanation of the Sabbath is the picture of God wanting to give us rest. But most importantly is he's pointing to Jesus who gives our souls rest. And so what we see then as we move on to Mark 2, we look at verse 25. So as as Jesus is coming, what, what he's saying to these people that are so weighted down and so guilty, He's telling them and he's explaining to them, my disciples, they're eating on the Sabbath because they're with me. Because they're having rest. Because they're having this joy and this freedom of intimacy, which goes all the way back in the very purpose in Genesis of what the purpose of the Sabbath was. So watch this. So now Jesus says and now he's he's giving them this priority of what the sabbath is all about have you not read which can you imagine how insulting to them that would be have you not read in other words he's saying you should know this and they would have read this and they would have known this story that it's about to be told but here's the thing and here's what is is evidence and proof that we can know the scriptures here intellectually that the Pharisees knew the scriptures, right? So he says, you should have read, shouldn't you know? But the problem is, is they didn't put their faith in the scriptures. The problem is they put their faith in the development of their own traditions and rules. And those had as much, if not more authority than the word of God. So that's why we have to be careful and just make sure we don't, add anything to our understanding and 
to our load other than the word of God. And the, the only load that we should have as we read the word of God is that we put faith in it and then we rest in it. So he says, have you never read that what David did when he was two keywords in need and hungry? He's, he's speaking about a story in 1 Samuel verses, uh, or chapter 21. And David was very hungry, and he says, he and those with him. Verse 26, and it says, and how David went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar. He was the high priest. Just a quick point, a quick note that in 1 Samuel 21, as you read this account, it actually mentions Ahimelech as the high priest. Abiathar was the father of Ahimelech. He was still alive. They were both, both there and operating. So some people would, would say that, well, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. But it was in the days of Abiathar, and Ahimelech was functioning as the specific high priest. And it says... So they ate the showbread. And he says, it's not lawful to eat except for the priests. And that was correct. And also he gave some to those who were with him. So Jesus is pointing to this story. And this story, this account, this historical account of David, at this time in 1 Samuel 21, David was anointed as the king of Israel, but he was not sitting as the king of Israel yet because Saul was the king of Israel and Saul was in that position and it wasn't time for David to take that place yet. But Saul was after David, so David fled. As David fled, a group of people came with him and he was hungry, probably close to fainting. He didn't know what to do. He's on the run and and so there's a, a... a, a temple, a tabernacle. There's a, a place where they're conducting the normal operations of the tabernacle. And so he would, he would go in there and there would be this showbread. They would make 12 loaves of showbread and they'd put them in two rows on a gold table inside the first room of the temple. And the high priest would make those once a week. And that bread would sit there for a week. And then the next week, he would make a new loaf. He would take out the old loaves and put new loaves there. And he would, the high priest would be able to eat the old loaves. Now, David goes in there and he says, hey, we're hungry. We're on the run. Can we eat some food? And, and he was granted the ability to eat the showbread, even though it was actually not according to the law to do that. But see, now Jesus is giving us the priority and the real reason for these rituals that we see in the Old Testament, the real understanding, there's the heart to them. So would it have been better for David and his men to not eat, maybe die, they probably wouldn't have died, but to faint and never have anything to eat, be susceptible to all sorts of dangers and Things like, would that be better just so the bread could sit there in the temple? Or does it seem like better when you're having a starving person come and actually let them eat, eat the bread, which the bread was just ceremonial, right? There's no other real significance to it 
the bread wasn't like, like you know, life-changing or life-altering. It's just ceremony. But what we find is these, these things of the Old Testament, they all point to Christ. The bread, Jesus is the bread of life, right? The seven candle menorah, Jesus is the light of the world. We can go on and on with that. But they were pictures or types that would point to Jesus. And so what Jesus was saying, and they would know, they didn't criticize David because they hold, held David in high esteem. They would know the story, but they were fine with it because they held David in high esteem. But see what Jesus is getting at? He's getting at he's greater than David. And he's getting at what we're going to see in the last section there, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But what's most important the Sabbath priority is we find this in Colossians 2, verse 16. And here it is. Let no man judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. You know what the Sabbath was pointing to? It was pointing to a person. Not a ritual, not a ceremony, not, it was pointing, pointing to a person. But, you know, it, it's easy to, for us to, you know, pick on them and say, well, that's ridiculous. But we have to ask ourselves the same question. Has Sunday mornings become a ritual? So it's possible just to show up at church and go through the motions. But if we understand the priority, the Sabbath priority, we come to worship a person. We come to worship God. It's not just, just coming and filling the pew and doing our duty. It's worshiping. And when we have that understanding, that changes our whole way that we live our life and the way that we worship because now it's where everything's worship. Remember John 4, if you want to worship me, you worship me in spirit and in truth. It's not a, a place on the mountain you go to or anything that we're worshiping Jesus. And this is what it all comes down to, not just the Sabbath, but this is what it all comes down to. It comes down to a person. It comes down to we worship a person. It comes down to Jesus is everything. It comes down to we don't want any substitutes for a personal intimate relationship with God. We don't want all that junk. We just want Jesus. And then he finishes with this, the last, the Sabbath mercy, the Sabbath blessing. In verse 27, he says, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Think about how tender that is God is saying I made this thing for you and here we have the essence of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ it's to, to know that he's designed us and life for us to enjoy him and walk with him and be at rest with him and Jesus is saying I made this for you but it says and not man for the Sabbath 
So the Sabbath wasn't made to control our life. The Sabbath was made to bless our life. And then he says, therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. So what he's doing there is saying that I'm above all those things. Don't stop at something lower than me. Don't stop. Don't settle for something that is less than me because going back to Genesis 1, we are created in his image to have fellowship with him. And that all brings this certain last scripture to a head then in Matthew 28. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, I should say. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus says this verse that we're going to say. He says this, and then he talks about the same story about the Sabbath. He precedes or leads into the story about the Sabbath, about everything we just talked about today. He leads in like this. Come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he invites us. He invites everybody. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. You know what that means? Overloaded, overburdened. Jesus is inviting you and I this morning who are overloaded, overburdened, And he simply says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to a system, go to church more, pray more, have a devotional life more. He says, come to me. All you who are heavy laden, and here's the promise, I, who? I, Jesus, I will give you rest. So if we don't have rest in our heart now, it's because we're not coming to him. It's because we're carrying something that we should bring to him. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke would be what they would attach animals together with, those wooden beams they had attached to animals to plow fields with. He says, take my yoke or connect with me. Let me carry the burden And then he says, and learn from me. Do we know how much Jesus loves us? Do you know how much he's designed good for us? Do you and I understand the depths of God's love for us? That's why we need to learn of him. When we learn of him, we learn how much he loves us and how much he cares for us. He says, for I am gentle And I am lowly in heart, and get this, and you will find rest for your souls. How does that sound? Soul rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I feel really heavy about this message this morning because I see a lot of heaviness. I see heaviness in the world. I see distress. I talk to my 
medical professional friends, they tell me about the problems with the prescription drugs and the need for people to do something to quiet their heart, do something to make themselves feel better, to do something to feel at ease in their heart, and they can't find the answer. So it's a series of covering up, whether through drugs or alcohol or just good religious works over and over again, but that's not the answer. And it's heavy because you see it. I don't know if you guys see it, but when you walk around in the world, it's just a zombie-like attitude. I very rarely see joy and lightness. I see heaviness. I see burden. I see a distress. I see hurt. And God says, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will we? That's what it comes down to. Will we? Will we? That's a promise. Will we come to him? He will give rest for our souls. You cannot put a price tag on that. There's no therapist that can bring rest to your soul. There's no human being that can do that. Only Jesus can do that, and he promises he will. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet. And Lord, I think we can all relate in some way, shape, or form to what it's like to carry our own burden. And we realize we're not meant for that. And you invite us to come to you. And so, Lord, I pray for our body, pray for this congregation, that there would truly be a lightness and not a burden that there would be a joy and not a depression, that there would be an enthusiasm and excitement, that we would have worshipful hearts. I pray for anybody here who's really just really struggling with burdens. I pray, Lord, that you'd give them the faith that they need, that they would exercise that faith now, that they would just simply rest in you, they wouldn't wait for their ship to come in because you have already died and you are the ship that has come in. That your grace is sufficient. So Lord, I pray for our body. I pray for those listening. Bring comfort and peace and joy to our souls. And may our countenance reflect that. And finally, Lord, I pray for anybody who is not saved, who is not born again, anybody that has not had their name written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to pray for anybody whose sins have not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If that's you, Jesus is calling you. I pray that you would respond and cry out to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. And as you do that, as you ask for his forgiveness and ask to be a child of God, he will receive that prayer and you will be born again. And so we pray for that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here. May they go in peace. And as we finish this service, may we worship you, 
with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand, and we are going to have Rob and Val up front for anybody who would like prayer about anything. As we sing this last song, just come up, and they will be right up here. They'll be happy and glad and excited to pray for you. So God bless you guys. Let's go in peace and in the love and joy of Jesus Christ. God bless you guys. Amen.